A reading from Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. There is nothing like preaching on Easter. Yeah. People will laugh at your jokes. People might even clap for any reason. Yeah. And even at Waterstone, people might even dance. I know, some of you were back at the prom, weren't you? Uh-huh. Did you know that on Friday, the sole surviving BG is releasing the 40th anniversary of the soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever? <laughs> you know, I can remember where I was when I first heard that song. I was a sophomore in high school, typing class, sitting at the typewriter. Now, for you young folks, a typewriter is like a, it's like a computer without a monitor or a memory. And uh, we were typing, and Miss Moriarty would lecture for the first part of the class about, I don't remember any of it. But uh, then the second half of the class would be FFF space, JJJ space. And then she'd say, well, we just need some music to liven it up. And as soon as she put on Saturday Night Fever, the end of the class came in the middle. We were done. You can't type to staying alive. <laughs> you know, there's a story behind that movie, Saturday Night Fever. John Travolta, 22 years old, big star, welcome back, Cotter. He began dating an older woman named Diana Highland. Uh, they had met when he was in a movie called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. When they began dating, not long after she was diagnosed with breast cancer, by the time of the filming of Saturday Night Fever, she was dying. 
and Travolta would fly from his, you know, the film set in New York to California every weekend, and about two weeks into the movie production, she died in his arms. Karen Lynn Gorney, who played Travolta's love interest in the movie, said from that point on, the cast and crew became the grief support group for John Travolta. And she said in the interview with Vanity Fair that if you watch the movie, you'll see that it's just smoldering in its attention and affection for Travolta and his character. And she said that was because all of us were committed to getting him through the toughest part of his life. Story behind the story. Welcome to Easter, the year of our Lord, 2017. There is nothing like preaching on Easter. But I need to tell you, Easter mm, has some issues, some self-esteem issues. First of all, what's the date of Easter next year? Okay, let me help you out here. Here is how you can figure it out. Easter is observed on the first Sunday following the full moon following the vernal equinox on March 21st, which means it falls between March 22nd and April 25th. There you go. It's on Sunday next year. <laughs> so there's this calendar confusion. I think Easter suffers from tradition confusion. I mean, what do chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs have to do with an empty tomb in Jesus? Frankly, Easter is the name of a goddess from an ancient spring festival in Europe. So what actually are we celebrating on Easter? But I also think Easter suffers from Christmas envy. I mean, eggs, uh, plastic or hard-boiled, in plastic grass, just don't have the commercial appeal of Santa's workshop and flying reindeer. And holding sweet little baby Jesus in your arms, that's money in the bank compared to a 33-year-old homeless man bleeding from a cross. But most of all, I think Easter struggles with self-esteem issues because it infringes upon one of our cultural taboos. I mean, if Easter is about resurrection, then in resurrection implies a death. And death is one of those areas we won't go. I mean, even when we talk about it, we use euphemisms like he passed away, she moved on, pine condo, dirt nap, you know, all these different ways of talking about death. And then when we do have to talk about it, we resort to pasting over the sting of it with these drivel like platitudes that we put on. I was at a funeral a couple months ago and in the flyer it said this, death is nothing at all. I have only slipped away to the next room. I am I and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. I'm like, what the heck is, you know, bad grammar aside, what does that mean? No, death is nothing platitudes. And then, you know, even in our culture, we have ways of dealing with death. One of my favorite books is a book by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. 
And in the book, and here's his premise, that American culture is designed primarily to help us not think about death. So the first thing you do is you get busy. Really, really, really busy. So you don't have to think about anything. And if that doesn't work, there's always substance abuse or addiction. And if that doesn't work, Becker says, go shopping. He won the Pulitzer Prize for this book, by the way. So there's this denial of death, or there's this denial of life after death. Many in our culture believe that we come from nowhere, and we are going nowhere. Uh, We are just a product now of random forces that have never had us in mind. So the best you can do is make the best of this life, because it's all you have. Another book I would recommend to you, a very interesting read, is by Sarah Murray. It's called Making an Exit. And she talks about funeral practices from different religions and places around the world. Sarah Murray doesn't believe in an afterlife, so she's uh, making the most of this life. She's already planned out her funeral service. She's going to be buried in a coffin in the shape of the Empire State Building because she loves the Big Apple. She would love to have the funeral in Central Park, but she's pretty sure Central Park doesn't do funerals. Here's what she says, though, about the way she lives now. There'll be no more new discoveries, no more exotic, enchanted experiences. Nothing will make my heart race because my heart will have stopped. While alive, I miss these moments on behalf of my dead self. Like, what? I don't really understand what that means. Sorry to bring this up on Easter, but staying alive is a problem. The story behind each one of our stories is that we're dying. We need to make up our mind about some things because the statistics on death are pretty good. So I submit to you a story that if you put it with your story, can answer some basic questions in your life. What I'd like to do is tell you the story of Easter, what it really means. It's, yeah, it's more than Easter bunnies and chocolate. I'd like to tell you the story of Easter, and then I'd like to tell you that if the story's true, here's what it means. So the story and what it means. The story of Easter can be told in three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday, Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was pitch black in the middle of the day. He was executed. He was executed because for the last three years, Jesus had gone around Israel uh, performing miracles. And some of these miracles were like, whoa. He would speak and seas would calm. He would speak and trees would listen to whatever he commanded. But even more with people, he would just go and lay hands on people and diseases would leave their body and demons would leave their body. And sometimes he even raised dead people back to life. Well, as you can imagine, word spread and crowds came and paparazzi was all over him. I mean, he would be speaking to thousands of people. And what got him killed was this. When he had these crowds, he would say things like this. All of you, you've come to see my miracles, but you need to hear this. At the end of your life and at the end of all time, 
you will stand before me and your destiny will be determined by what you've done with me. Now, Nick might get up here and say that, but I would never say that to you. Can, can you imagine? What would you have thought if someone had said that in a crowd? Another time, he healed a man. A man couldn't walk. Jesus says, get up and walk, and don't forget your mat. And they're all like, whoa. And then Jesus said, what's easier for me to say, for me to say, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? What's easier for me to say? Now, I think we need to get the full impact of that, what he's saying there. Nick's my good friend here. I steal $20 from Nick. We're having a discussion about it. Jesus comes up, and Jesus says, Larry, your sins are forgiven. What does Nick think? Who do you think you are? Jesus acted as if every sin was committed against him. Well, these kind of claims, they got him killed. He died. From the rest of chapter 15 in the Gospel of Mark, after he's dead on the cross, Mark's intent is to make sure that we understand that Jesus is dead. So, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret follower of Jesus, he was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, a Jewish priest, uh, he went to uh, Pilate and asked permission because he saw that Jesus was dead. He wanted to take him down off the cross before the Sabbath started, Friday at 6 o'clock. So get him off the cross, get him into a tomb, and uh, we can finish the burial anointing later, but let's get him down. So Joseph goes to Pilate. Pilate, who was the Roman governor over Judea, had total legal authority over this scene. And uh, he says to his centurion, is he dead? And the centurion said, he's dead. And the Roman centurion gets the report to Pilate, he is dead. Now, you need to understand that never in recorded history in Rome did anyone survive an execution, not once. So the centurion says, dead. Pilate says, dead. And Joseph of Arimathea says, dead. Jesus is dead. And by the way, two women followed who had been in Jesus' disciples, who had been following him for those three years. They wanted to be sure they knew where Jesus was buried. And so they followed Joseph of Arimathea's procession to the tomb so they'd know where they could go back and finish the burial process. So everyone is saying Jesus is dead. That's Friday. Friday, Jesus dead. Saturday, Jesus buried. Saturday may be the only day in human history when not a single person believed Jesus was alive. Friday dead, Saturday buried, Sunday, Sunday. Now there are three women who want to come and finish anointing Jesus' body, preparing it for uh, uh, lying in the tomb. There's Mary Magdalene, who was a former prostitute that Jesus had healed and saved. There was Mary, the mother of James. There was Salome. 
And their topic of discussion as they walk to the tomb is, how in the world are we going to move the rock that's covering the hole? Because this was a big tomb. This was a rich man. Isaiah prophesied, by the way, 700 years earlier that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Big tomb. Big stone. They're going to need some help if they are going to move this stone. That's their stress. They get up to the tomb. They see the stone has already been rolled away. They look inside. There to the right is a young man dressed in white. Code for angel. The angel says, don't be alarmed. (laughs) Yeah, right. Angels always had to say that. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. He who was crucified, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now notice the three women's response. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Wouldn't you be? I mean, first there's the angel, and then there's a missing body of one you loved. But I think there's another thing, a story behind this story that's pressing down on the women and really has them bewildered, and it's this. The Jewish faith believed in resurrection. They believed that at the end, everyone who knew God, their body would be resurrected. They thought the Messiah would come at the end, get all the dead resurrected, and then they'd move into the eternal state. What they didn't expect was just one man coming back in the middle of history to wreck the world. That's what Easter means, by the way. Jesus drags the future into the present to open up a new world in the middle of ours. And that world is called the kingdom of God. Now, the Jews... They would have said, if someone had told them this story, they would have said, wait a minute, you're telling me that, you know, one man's going to come in the middle, that when he comes, it's not going to be the end of suffering, death? No, that's coming later. I mean, to them, it would have been like the Colorado Rockies, third baseman, winning the World Series. The other guys have to wait. Resurrection was a team sport to the Jews. They had no concept of one man by his own power walking out of his own grave to start a new movement. Hmm. They got their footing. They went and told their brothers and Peter. Jesus made, we think, 10 appearances over a 40-day period to teach all the disciples about his resurrection about what it means about the kingdom of God this new world and then he was hoisted back up to heaven to the right hand of his father as he was being hoisted he told everyone who was following him go into all the world preach the gospel make disciples of all nations Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've taught you. 
and I will be with you until the end of the age. Go. And they did, and we're here. Do you know that today, Resurrection Sunday, there were more Christians worshiping a risen Jesus in China than the United States? Do you know today they held worship services in Uganda and Kenya with cinder block walls and steel roofs with packed houses? Do you know that they made clearings in the rainforest in Brazil to have Christian worship of a risen Christ today? Do you know that my friend was preaching in Nantucket earlier this morning, the eastern coast of the United States, and I'm sure there's going to be worship in tents in California tonight. This is a movement that has been launched, that has been unstoppable, unpredictable, unwavering. Do you know that last year the United Bible Society, and this is just one Bible publishing company in one language, gave away 143 million Bibles in one year? Usually with a famous person, their impact on the world begins to recede after their death. But it wasn't that way with Jesus. Rodney Stark in The Rise of Christianity, he's a professor up at the University of Washington, he said that in 40 AD, Jesus had around 10,000 followers. In 350 AD, 34 million followers. In the year 1000, Jesus and the church laid the foundations of what became Europe. In 1500, Jesus and the church laid the foundations for what would become Western civilization. And today, there are billions of Christians worshiping a risen Jesus. It just seems like Jesus is haunting everything. If you're here wrestling with what's real and what happens after our death, that story... This is a story you need to consider. You're sitting among evidence this morning. So, if it's true, and you get to decide, but if it's true, here's what it means. First, it means forgiveness. It's interesting that the angel actually preaches the first Easter message. First thing he says is, go and tell your brothers and who? Peter. Why Peter? Yeah, because Peter had just two days earlier had a stunning betrayal. You know, Jesus would say, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter said, well, all these other guys, they'll fail you, but I will never fail you. I will never let you down, Jesus. You can count on me. You know the story, right? Jesus denied I mean, Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. In each denial, it seemed that he swears, and he wouldn't even mention Peter's, Jesus' name on his lips. I don't know him. Isn't it significant that when Jesus returns on the greatest day in human history, the first name on his lips is Peter. The resurrection means we have a God who is full of grace. 
He's a mulligan God. It's a do-over. Every time we let him down, every time we go our own way, every time we screw up, mulligan, grace of God. The resurrection means that we are forgiven of our sins and our identity is transformed such that we are no longer defined by our failures. We are defined as family, a son or a daughter of God. That is good news. We are forgiven of anything in our past. You've done nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. We are forgiven. The second thing the resurrection means is that our future is secure. The angel said, he is risen. He is not here. Well, where is he? Well, Jesus evidently is walking around somewhere in a physical body. He made these 10 appearances during the 40-day period. What's interesting is that, you know, they could embrace him. They could touch him. They could see the scars that he had. They could talk to him and hear him. And I think what's most significant is they ate together. That's cool. It's a resurrected body that's physical, but yet it's different. It's transformed and made into a more glorious condition in that the body Jesus now has, though physical, is not subject to space or time. Jesus would appear in locked rooms without using the door. He uh, would have a body that would be eternal and in which he lives forever. So this is a new body, physical but changed, that is perfectly outfitted to live with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever. What if that's true? What if, as Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits, which means if it happened to him, if you believe in him, it happens to you. What happens if it's first fruits? What happens if Jesus is the pioneer resurrection man who walked into the tombs of death, punched a hole through the other side, crawled through, and now says to you and me, follow me? What if? Jesus is preparing us a body that is outfitted for heaven. What if Jesus has secured a joy so stunning that if we were to feel the weight of it now, we would come undone? What if the worst day of your life, the worst day, your marriage is in the tank, your health is shot, you've lost your job, the worst day of your life is also the day that is always true, resurrection is coming. It boundaries everything in our lives. Resurrection is coming. So our past is forgiven. Our future is anchored by the resurrection. But what about the present? It's interesting when the angel says, okay, go and tell the brothers and Peters, he's not here, go into Galilee because I'm going there and you'll see me there. That word go to Galilee, that what says Jesus is going into Galilee is not the normal word for go in the original language. It wasn't just that Jesus was a fast walker. It wasn't that he was punctual. It means march. Jesus has led the troops onto the field. He is the first one to run out with the team. He has walked out the march. 
What it means is that everywhere you walk, Jesus is already walking. And when you get there, wherever you're going, you'll see him. It packs the present with punch, with significance, with purpose. Everywhere you walk tomorrow, there you will see him, just as he said. Everywhere you walk this year, when it's hard, when your health fails, there you will see him, just as he said, room 202, Swedish Hospital. When you have to have that conversation with your adult child who's off the rails, there you will see him, just as he said. Whoever follows Jesus is on the march with the king. That means that the greatest evidence I could ever give to you for the truth of this resurrection story is the person sitting next to you. They are living proof. They are on the march with Jesus. A.N. Wilson, who was a secular philosophy, an atheist, he got converted a few years ago, and now he writes, like, uh, Christian stuff. <laughs> but he writes editorials for London newspapers. One of his first Easter's, he wrote this. Material atheism says we are just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism or poetry if we are simply animated pieces of meat. The resurrection which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined is the ultimate key to who we are. It confronts us with an extraordinarily haunting story. J.S. Bach believed the story and set it to music. Most of the greatest writers and thinkers of the past 1,500 years have believed it. But an even stronger argument is the way that Christian faith transforms individual lives, the lives of the men and women with whom you mingle on a daily basis. The man, woman, or child next to you in church this morning. What's your story? What's the story that speaks to the story of death that's around your life? of which the statistics are pretty good. What's the story behind your story that gives you hope? If it's this Easter story, then you have forgiveness of sins. Every day is grace for you from a loving Father. If you buy this story, then you have a promised future. Resurrection is coming. If this is your story, your present is packed with purpose because you are on march with the King. What's your story? Oh! Did I tell you how the story ends? The story ends with a marriage banquet. That's where every believer of Jesus lands at the end of all time. A big table the Father's prepared where the, the, the groom and the bride, the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom and we celebrate that kind of love, that kind of love that led Jesus to love his bride so much that he gave his life for her. And he'll show us those scars. And we'll look at those and we'll think, those were my sins. Those were my curses. But Jesus says, no. Those are marks of how much I love you.
Jesus loves you. That's the story. He's given his life for you. He's walked out of his grave to bring you forgiveness and future and purpose. Will you come to the table and join the dance? Let's pray. God, the Apostle Paul, he put it this way. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Lord, if there's anyone in the room this morning who's never made this story their own, who's never said, Jesus, I want to be part of your story and who you are, and what you're doing and find my meaning and purpose there all you need to say to king jesus right now is jesus i'm yours save me help me forgive me but i'm yours i want to be in your story just tell him that right now for the rest of us whatever's coming this week whatever's coming tomorrow some of us in this need in this room need to walk out of here understanding again we are forgiven God is a God of grace some of us need to understand that no matter if our body's dying if our if we're getting old if we're getting cynical whatever it is hear these words of the gospel resurrection is coming resurrection is coming and may that boundary all our fears and some of us need to refocus how much purpose we have in this life because we're on the march with Jesus. So Lord, Holy Spirit, take this good news of your story and bring it into every heart here. We want to come to your table. We want to join the dance. Amen.